Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Audrey Hepburn transformed from a child of privilege to a child of war, from a star of the silver screen to a shining example of the best of humanity. The world is forever a better place for her having lived in it. The end. Let's talk about Audrey Hepburn. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1953, sweet rationing that had begun during World War II in Britain was finally lifted. U.S. President Truman announced the development of the hydrogen bomb, and in a semi-related event, a few weeks later, Dwight Eisenhower was inaugurated as the 34th U.S. president. The polio vaccine was introduced, and the chemical structure of a DNA molecule was discovered. TV Guide published its very first issue with baby Desi Arnaz Jr. on the cover, and Playboy published its very first issue with Marilyn Monroe in the centerfold. New in her role as queen, Queen Elizabeth II launched the Royal Yacht Britannia. She knighted Winston Churchill, and eventually she was crowned. Ernest Hemingway won the Pulitzer Prize for The Old Man in the Sea, and Elvis Presley graduated from Humes High in Memphis, Tennessee. Pat Benatar, Jeb Bush, Rick Moranis, George Brett, Tim Gunn, Kathy Lee Gifford, Cindy Lauper, and Swiss harpist Andreas Vollenweider were born. No relation. And on September 2nd, 1953, Audrey Hepburn's first Hollywood movie, Roman Holiday, opened, and a superstar career of a fashion icon was launched. Audrey Kathleen Rustin was born on May 4th, 1929 in Brussels, Belgium, the first and only child of her parents, Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin and Baroness Ella von Heemstra, though Mama had two sons from a previous marriage. Papa Joseph was British. He was 11 years older than his wife, Ella. And as far as a career goes, it seems like he did as little work as possible. <laughs> his whole background is shrouded in mystery. He also was the son of a British father and an Austrian mother, which made him British, just like Audrey, British, her official nationality. Even though she was born in Brussels, she was an English woman. It's very complicated. But did he fight in World War I, as he said he did? Did he go to Trinity College, Cambridge, as he said he did? Mm -mm. No one seems to be able to verify or disprove either thing. No. And even his careers, there's sources vary. Like the jobs that he did, they're, they're different. So it's, yes, he is a very man of mystery, but he's very handsome. And he had a little thin mustache as you know, it was fashionable at the time. He reminds he me of the most interesting man in the world. And I think that's like kind of his persona too. It's like, hey, I've done things. I've wrestled bears. I've, you know, I think he's yeah. like that guy. I think, yeah, personality wise, but his pocketbook wasn't. And there's a lot of speculation that he hitched his wagon to Ella because of her financial situation and her title. He loved her title. He used the word baroness, but I don't think he know exactly what it meant for uh, Dutch nobility. It was not like British nobility. First off, there was a heck of a lot more of them. It's like everywhere you turn, there was a baroness or something right around the corner. And they were very down to earth. It was kind of almost their motto, you know, just be unassuming, help out as much as possible, be very down to earth, don't flaunt anything. And here comes Joe and he wants to be like, woohoo, I married a baroness. Well, that's Old money versus new money. I've said it before. Mm -hmm. Old yep. money comes to the store and paints spattered clothes with big dogs in the car. <laughs> new money has to put on their high heels. 
That's all I'm saying about that. Yeah, she was nobility, mama. Baroness Ella von Heemstra. She's the daughter of Baron Arnold von Heemstra and Baroness Elbrich von Osbeck. Now, what on earth? Here's what happens in the Dutch nobility. Every child of a baron becomes a baron or baroness. Baronesses, that's a dead end. Your children don't get any titles, but barons get to pass down titles to all their children. So if you have 12 children, there's 12 new barons and baronesses for the world to enjoy. That is why during the Gilded Age, when all those heiresses were going across to Europe, they were warned against, quote, continental titles because they don't mean what you think they mean. Mm -hmm. You could end up marrying a no count. You know, <laughs> whereas if you married in the British aristocracy, you could tell what was what just by the guy's title. It was right. a very important distinction. The family's vast wealth had come from generations of trade, although more recent generations, as we got closer to Ella, they were more statesmen than import-export man. For instance, her father would go on to become the governor of Dutch Guiana, that level of statesmanship. And she had eight siblings. Wow. All barons and baronesses. That's right. Big, big baron and baroness party. <laughs> well, I do want to say her family got their titles in 1528. These are not newcomers at all. Mm -hmm. They did, Mama and Papa, run in the same social circles out in the Dutch East Indies, which we now call, of course, Indonesia. Papa had been married and divorced. He's sitting out here in what is now Bhutan. If you look at India, it's up and to the right. <laughs> I'm working on my Asia geography quizzes, and that is really difficult for me. I mastered Africa, but oh, Asia's hard. Anyway, um, so they met out there. Mama got divorced from her husband after some infidelity and some arguments. And, you know, she's like Coco Chanel, I guess. So if he's the most interesting man, she's fashionable, she's social, people are drawn to her. They were a very magnetic couple once they got together. It was almost inevitable, I think, just because they had a lot in common. Mm -hmm. And so who knows if it was true love on either side, really. I don't know. I, I think he might have been security, like the security of having a husband in a cruel, cruel world. And she was the money. <laughs> Maybe. I found it so interesting, the personality of Audrey's mother. She was described when she was younger as a born actress, very dramatic, highly emotional, with a great sense of fun. But as a mother, that doesn't really sound like her. <laughs> I almost think the proprieties compress you, maybe, mm -hmm. as you grow a little older. Yeah. And um, hardship or whatever. Well, though Papa's outsides were, of course, perfectly acceptable to everyone, worldly, handsome, outgoing, his name was not acceptable. So he dug down deep into genealogy and lo, he may have been, if you like squint your eyes and twist your head, a distant relation to James Hepburn, the third husband of Mary Queen of Scots. So we talked about him in episode 58, though I think we referred to him by his title, the Earl of Bothwell, the guy that blew up Mary's second husband. <laughs> anyway, it's 300 years after that. Uh, we are grabbing at straws for nobility. Also, there is talk out there that, in fact, he's descended from that guy's second wife who had no Hepburn <laughs> in her name at all. So the straws are even thinner. Fair enough as well. 
As long as people are accepting it, I don't know. The Baroness had her husband start using the hyphenated last name Hepburn Rustin. Why is that fancier? Because it's hyphenated. I mean, you didn't see a whole lot of hyphenated names back then, did you? Well, it still is, evidently. I just watched this comedy skit uh-huh. where all the little upper class kids, they're in an egg and spoon race. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like, Thomas Taylor Thomas, Chloe Taylor Thomas, and blah, blah, blah. And then they find out the eggs aren't organic, and everybody screams and runs for their Range Rovers and drives off. We'll link you to that video. So maybe a hyphenated name indicates that you're of those two bloodlines, like people should A, know, and B, care about those things? Well, clearly they didn't have only 16 uh, spaces to put their name in on forms. Because <laughs> you start putting all those letters in, it gets really difficult. One, I two, speak from three, experience. Four, five, six, 11, 12. I think they're doing okay. Plus. Their first name. Oh. And the hyphen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it gets kind of cramped. Trust me. I feel bad for you guys in kindergarten. Like, yeah. How come he gets to say Fox? F-O-X. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, that wasn't my maiden name, so it was a little shorter. So the two did get married. It was a meeting of the minds, if not a meeting of the hearts. Fair enough. Throughout history, that has been a perfectly reasonable reason to get married. They moved out of the Dutch East Indies and back to London and then on to Brussels, where Papa had, I don't know what it is, some kind of high-flying corporate banking VP job that was or was not a real job. Or, depending on another source, he could have been an executive in an insurance company, question mark. This is what I was saying. Nobody knows his resume. Nobody knows what it looks like. Well, and also, I think some of these VP jobs are like being a producer on a movie. Like, that's the title you get given when it's not really a job. They just want your connections to be affiliated with the company. The number of executive producers that are honorifics is probably high. Yes, I would agree. So um, their daughter, Audrey, was born here in Brussels at home at 48 Rue Kienveld, which is still there, by the way, if you want to go see it. But I have to tell you, there's a plaque, but you can't go in and it's not fancy. And there it is. <laughs> if you, I mean, if you're there anyway and happen to turn down the right road, you can take a picture of yourself in front of the plaque if that's what you would like to do. Well, if you're there, I took a picture of myself in front of Emily Post's cottage. Oh, yes. Yeah, so. I took a picture of Mary Cassatt's house without me in front of it. <laughs> well, I also took some without me. And, um, <laughs> yes. Because it looked just like the pictures. Imagine that. <laughs> Well, Mama wanted a place in the country. So by the time little Audrey was only two, the family moved again to a village just outside of the city, the same way people these days have a child and move to the suburbs. It's Rue des Etres, now H-E-T-R-E-S 129, in a village called Linkabeek. And that is also still there. And this house seems to have inserted its way into Audrey's heart. It was full of gardens and orchards and animals and fresh air. And I think this went into her heart for her life in a way that no other place did. So the house, the environment, the brothers, the playing outside, you know, the having of pets, awesome. But Audrey's parents, I have to say, were kind of tempestuous. They were pretty much arguing all the time. And Audrey remembers hiding under tables and feeling very upset about it. It's a vivid enough memory from being a small child that it still upset her when she used to remember it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like when dad was away on business, whatever that was, the house was fairly calm. You know, Audrey was being taught by her tutor and she's being with her nanny. And then dad would come home and the whole dynamic blew up, which it usually does. But it calms down in most houses and it didn't in this one. So when the family was all home, little Audrey did spend most of her time outside playing with her older brother, Ian, who was five years older. I'm good for him hanging out with his little sister. Older Mm -hmm. brothers don't always do that. But he liked having her around to climb up trees and build tree houses and dig it in the mud. You bring in that. I love the outdoor little kids stink Uh that they (laughs) had. But they would bring it to the nannies. I mean, they were the only ones who gave them affection. I have to say, pretty normal for their class and their time. You'd see mama and papa after you'd been cleaned up and put into your nicer clothes. You know, you might go for a nice walk in town with your mother. But she's not coming outside to see you build a snowman or whatnot. Both of her brothers modeled something else that Audrey loved for the rest of her life, and that was reading. You know, if Alex was into Kipling, Audrey was into Kipling. And she loved The Secret Garden. I love that book. I do, too. (laughs) I remember being very offended, though, that everyone was like, Mary, it's too bad you're so ugly. The whole time, I'm like, can you not keep that to yourself, everyone? From the kitchen maid on up, it's like, it's too bad you're so horrible looking. (laughs) That's nice. I was like, no wonder she hates all of you. (laughs) Anyway. Back to small, child, small child anger at the secret garden. Well, here, this will probably describe you because it certainly describes me when I was a kid. One time on a train trip to Italy, her mother gave her a copy of Heidi and Audrey was so wrapped up in it that she missed seeing all of Switzerland. Huh. It's like going out past the window and she's so wrapped up in her book. But she's that. in Switzerland in her head. I know. If she could just look up, she could see like the Edelweiss and stuff. Well, that's cute. That is cute. Yeah. That's another book I really like. Heidi? Uh Uh-huh. I don't think I read Heidi. Well, and there's problematic things about Heidi, too. (laughs) She gets, like, left with some old mean relative, and then when it suits people, she's just fetched and sent to live in another town with strangers. I'm like, you guys. (laughs) I don't know. I did see the Shirley Temple movie. Shirley Temple does not look like Heidi, (laughs) the end. Heidi looks like baby Snow White. That's what she looks like. Not like Shirley Temple. I stand not, firm. Really? Not the yes. Swiss Miss blonde braids, huh? No. Oh. <laughs> wow. I have to do a whole mind switch in my head. Oh, sorry. No, keep it. Keep I, whatever you want in your head. Now that I think about it, it is the Swiss Miss. When I read Heidi, the name, I was like, oh, that's the Swiss Miss. Like, I can see the picture in my head. <laughs> so we have no idea if Audrey was offended or alarmed, and she probably was not by anything found in her books. <laughs> so moving on to actual audrey she did start dancing class when she was about four she started piano lessons at about four just like me where your hands don't reach which is sort of frustrating but whatever she was also very fond of art loved babies but not baby dolls she's just a regular little girl Mm -hmm. though she was far more well-traveled than your average preschooler. The brothers had to stay home and go to school, but Audrey was taken with off to Paris or England with her parents. And as a result, she spoke English and French quite fluently. But we need to talk about this, what exactly her parents were doing, especially while they were in England. Mm -mm -mm. This is not good. (laughs) They had fallen under the spell of a politician named Sir Oswald Mosley and his British Union of Fascists. The B-U-F. Oh, oh dear. 
And I'm sorry to say, Sir Oswald Mosley's first wife was the daughter of Mary Leiter. We talked about her in the Gilded Age Heiresses episode way back in 2011, like wow. our, one of our first series. Not that it mattered. I mean, he was sleeping with his wife's younger sister at the same time. Mm -hmm. so. He's real quality. <laughs> So he does have a connection to a previous episode, but the British Union of Fascists, I, where to start? You know by the very name that it's not a let's hold hands and skip society? They wanted an isolated Britain. They wanted the, and I quote, cleansing of British society of undesirable elements. What does that mean? Not Jewish citizens specifically and named, not yet, but they were very interested in otherizing mm -hmm. a significant portion of society. Oh, they wanted to hearken back to the good old days when everyone knew their place and were happy in it for the common good. Of course, that benefits the upper classes. They wanted to crystallize that social hierarchy that Britain had lost after World War I. We saw that at Downton Abbey. Suddenly maids were all uppity and wanted to work for a telephone company or chauffeurs had more options. Like, dang it, the upper class is really suffering now. <laughs> yeah. They had a model in Germany at the time with Hitler. He was doing exactly what the British wanted to do in Germany. So, of course... All of this hearkening back to the idealized past really appealed to a certain section of the British aristocracy. We've talked about that during the Wallace Simpson podcast. Audrey's parents were involved. Their circles were the same. This movement had some heavy hitters in it. Now, lest you think this is just a British problem, America, too, had its own Nazi rallies happening at the same time in 1939. There is a movie short called A Night at the Garden, which is up for an Oscar this year. It refers to a night at Madison Square Garden when over 20,000 American Nazis held a rally in New York City. So this is going on all over the world. Mama wrote some articles for the BUF publication called The Black Shirt, which is the violent military wing of the BUF, all about how great it would be. Basically, the group knows best. Individual freedoms are messy. They're overrated. It's what They were very involved in fundraising, promotion, member recruitment. They gave Mosley so much money that he took Mama and Papa on a special tour of Hitler's Germany. With no other than the Mitchford sisters, who we have not covered, but they are on the list. It sounds an awful lot like the Disneyland tour that Wallace Simpson and David got, where they were shown all the glossy parts, you know, the factory, the improvements, the schools, the improvements. They got their picture taken with Hitler. It's all great. They I mean, framed that picture in silver and put it on the mantelpiece. Yeah. At Audrey's house. I'm just telling you, this is not, oh, I guess we're going because our friends tell us to. No, this is like, can't wait. I'm buying new clothes for this trip. <laughs> now, of course, Audrey, age six, had literally no idea about any of this. No. <laughs> of course not. Here's what she knew. She was at preschool one day. And her father left the family. Audrey remembered this as the most traumatic moment in her life. And that is saying something, given what is about to come. Audrey would say that her mother's hair actually turned white overnight from the stress of the whole thing. But he was gone. And I just want to, like, wrap him up in a bow and throw him aside. Can we do that? Sure. Or do we need to talk about him again later? Mm -hmm. I mean, later, later we will. But just for now, do you mind? Sure. Joseph left and joined a much more radical fascist group. And in the not too distant future, he's going to be rounded up, found guilty, 
the amount of evidence is questioned, but comes down to the same thing. The British House of Commons put him in jail for the duration of World War II. So he's done. (laughs) He's out of the picture as far as I'm concerned. So Audrey, small Audrey, is convinced that he just abandoned them. And he did. But it seems that Grandpa von Heemstra, Ella's father, may be under orders from Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands herself. Mm-hmm. He has a daughter who is a lady-in-waiting of the Crown Princess. These are a connected family, so it's not like as random as it seems. No. <laughs> Queen Wilhelmina knew the family. Maybe she called and said, Ixne on the uninlace, you know, you have to stop because his actions are reflecting bad on our country. And people are starting to take it like the Netherlands might actually be sympathetic to the cause of Hitler. And we are not. So you need to call that. Give him some money or whatever it is and tell him to go away. Well, he left his daughter out of the negotiations. And so she had no idea. It came out of the blue. Divorce was suddenly in the works. And so I can see how that would be a total shock. Not only your husband has left you, but your mm-hmm. dad and possibly the queen told him to go. <laughs> I know. Well, they had, I, I want to say that maybe it was a little bit of a relief for her, for Ella, because they had been fighting so much, you know, I mean, as far as that goes, like the one little golden nugget in there, if that's what happened. Well, Papa objected after this divorce to Audrey being taken out of England at all. So as a compromise, she was enrolled in a boarding school in Kent, where there was easy access from both parents at six. Six years old, her parents got divorced. She got dumped at boarding school. That is absolutely traumatic. Her brothers are gone. Her mom's gone. Her dad's gone. I'm in a school in a foreign country. Um, She became very withdrawn and says that she spent her time eating either chocolate or her fingernails. She was a mess. She was a mess. She got so bad. The school had actually told her parents, try to stay away for half a year. Let's see if she gets better and adjusts. Everybody adjusts. Nope, nope, nope. She got worse and worse. Finally, Mama had to rent rooms in a cottage in the town just to spend time with her and go to visit her sons instead of the reverse. Mm -hmm. She also made arrangements for Audrey on vacations, holidays, uh, to go spend time living with a coal miner's family in the country. It was like immersion British, everyman culture, I guess is what it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she ended up really adoring this family and staying in contact with them for many, many years. So she came out of her shell a little bit at the coal miner's house. No, that's good. That's good. She did stabilize. Mm -hmm. She made friends. She did well in her studies. She found a passion and a talent for ballet. Mama did not take up her British Union of Fascist stuff again. I don't know, but maybe she was told why her marriage had been broken up. Like, Mm -hmm. you better not. Yeah. And maybe part of it is that she went along with him. I don't want to give her a pass here at all. But, you know, it was a thing they could do as a couple. And if they had already had a uh, strained marriage, it could have brought them back together again. I don't know. Nope. I'm not giving her any credit. She's the one that wrote those articles for the black shirts. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just trying to figure out why she would have gotten involved in the first place. I can easily understand how she could have gotten uh, brainwashed to think that this was the right path. But Well, because the upper classes wanted the good old days back and this right. seemed like the way to get the good old days back. I will tell you, there is a um, screen cap. I'll have to send it to you to put in the show notes, maybe. There's a screen cap in that movie, The King's Speech, 
Mm-hmm. That is kind of amazing. There's a little boy on the street and behind him, this is right when David has just abdicated the throne and his brother, the king who's trying to make the speech throughout this whole movie, is trying to go to the speech therapist. There's a poster that said, the black shirt to support the king, meaning David. Oh, Yeah, it says the black shirts support the king. And so that, to me, means the Nazis are all about the king who has just abdicated. Interesting. And there's also speculation, as we talked about during the Wallace Simpson podcast, that that papa was forced to leave his marriage because of his Nazi activities. There's speculation that the king was forced to abdicate, not because of Wallace Simpson, but because of his Nazi activities. So turmoil at home was one thing. Turmoil in Europe was another thing. There is a more sinister dark force gathering in the land. Hitler has annexed Austria and then invaded Poland. Poland took giant hits. Poland was a mess. Poland was horrible. So while those things were happening in Europe, Audrey was still a little girl going to school. When Audrey was 10, England and France officially declared war on Germany and Mama was far away in Arnhem, the Netherlands. Transportation between England and Europe was shutting down. You can almost hear those big gates that people put in front of their stores in big cities. Mm -hmm. Just metaphorically, wham, wham, clang, doors are shutting. Imagine your fear if you're a mother. Your 10-year-old is trapped in a country that has just declared war. It's very scary. And Holland had stayed neutral for most of World War I. Mama wanted to bring Audrey from England a country boarding school in England, back to Holland. And now we know, looking back, this was the exact opposite of what the best plan was. But looking at the information Mama had, you know, you'd probably do the same thing. My country was neutral. Let's bring her back here. England is a powder keg mm-hmm. and I can't handle it. You know, Audrey actually had to be taken to a small airport because the bigger ones had already closed to all but military traffic. And she got put on one of the last planes out of England. So we'll leave Audrey there for just a moment and take a little break. She is starting a new life in her childhood home. And when we come back, we will find out how that worked out for her. Skip the trip. Find your fit with Third Love's online fit finder. Order and try on at home. No more awkward fitting room experiences. You know, they have a 100% fit guarantee, and I tested this so I know it's true. Every customer has 60 days to wear your bra, to wash it, to put it to the test. And if you don't love it, you can return it. No questions asked. And they take those bras, they wash them, and then they donate them to women in need. Isn't that amazing? That's nice. I know. And if it doesn't fit you, Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find that perfect fit. They're available every day, anytime you want to text or chat or even call them up. And like I said, returns and exchanges are extremely easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com chicks for 15% off today. Thank you. 
And we're back. Audrey has taken one of the very last bright orange planes from England to the Netherlands, and she is about to start a new chapter in her life. Audrey started at a new school, held, of course, in Dutch. She was not that good in Dutch. She spent every day lost and panicking, frankly, every night dreading the next day. She had to dig in and get used to her whole world being upended again and kind of found relief only in her dance classes. We talked about this during the Anne Frank episode, which is happening in the same place and at the same timetable. Germany's been like, oh, our Dutch brothers and sisters, we're family. Don't worry. We have such history. Our bloodlines are all the same, etc. I mean, Audrey's family let Kaiser Wilhelm live in one of their castles. So <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> yes, the ties are very tight. When all of a sudden, wham, we talked about this during the Anne Frank episode, there was a German bombing raid. Rotterdam is leveled it's a surprise. There's parachutists all over Holland. It's war brought to their cousin's house. Uncool. 11-year-old Audrey and family heard the Germans marching through their town, heard the heavy vehicles rolling by, but were warned if the Germans saw anyone peeking through the curtains, they would shoot them. So much for family loyalty. No kidding. Well, I mean, as far as Germany goes, that's the best plan, right? Don't tell them. Don't show your cards. I guess. Well, there were five days of unexpected fighting as far as the Germans were concerned. Whoa, we didn't know our little friends were going to be so feisty. Finally, the Germans just threatened to level Amsterdam too. How about it? And the Dutch kind of had to roll over. They had managed to evacuate the royal family, though, during those five days out to England. But otherwise, it was thorough German occupation. But her older brother, Alexander, had to go into hiding because he was in the Dutch army and had fought against the Germans. And if he'd been caught, he could have been killed. Mama, Audrey, and her brother, Ian, had to move into a smaller apartment because the Germans had seized most of Grandpa's property. German officers were now living in his big house. Grandpa had been the breadwinner or the bread haver. I don't think he won any bread. He just had it <laughs> for a while. But um, for a couple of years, for Audrey anyway, life sort of snapped back into place. We did talk about that. The Germans were nicer than usual for a while in the Netherlands for that same reason. Like maybe we can just get them to be a part of Germany calmly. So in a gingerly way, anyone who was not Jewish could pick up their lives and sort of just go on. So Audrey just went back to her ballet, went back to school, noticed that there were no Jewish children at her school anymore. Jewish teachers had been dismissed. Books had changed a little bit, but she's 11. None of this is going to sink in too heavily, I don't think. No, because her life hasn't really changed all that much. Notably, though, there is one thing Mama had to do to keep Audrey safe. She trained her daughter to give her name, not as Audrey Kathleen, but as Etta Van Heepstra, which is kind of a play on her own name. It doesn't scream, I'm a British citizen. Because Audrey was a citizen of an enemy country at this point and don't speak English outside the house. Also, more sinisterly, Audrey was an unusual name and the average German soldier is going to equate unusual name to Jewish. Mm -hmm. So better not risk it. Even though Audrey was too young to be required to have an ID card, kids grow. You know, let's start now. The theory is that Edda, E-D-D-A, was chosen because Mama had an ID card, of course, E-L-L-A, and you can adapt those L's easily to D's. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, they were handwritten anyway, but that seemed like an easy change. If, as Audrey grew, she needed an ID card, that would be easy to change. So mm-hmm. they, like Anne Frank and her family, listened to Queen Wilhelmina on Radio Orange from England. Audrey was actually trained, this was her job, to change back to the regular music-only radio station so that if there was ever a German raid, nobody would get in trouble. You'll remember Anne Frank was tasked with the very same thing in her hiding place. Everyone would go down to listen to Queen Wilhelmina and the resistance radio, and then they had to change it back before they went back upstairs. The parallels between Audrey's story and Anne's story are just heartbreaking. You know, I know. There's, they're in the same country. They're not that far away from each other. Um, they're undergoing the same, so much of the same things. They're exactly the same age. They were born the same year. Yeah. Heartbreaking. So when Audrey was 13 in 1942, the same year that Anne Frank and her family had to go into hiding, the Germans took their gloves off as far as the Dutch were concerned. There was widespread and dawning knowledge among the Dutch people as to what started to happen to their Jewish neighbors. There was public dismay and general strikes, rebellions, and the Nazis decided they weren't going to have it, and they started to crack down. The Dutch resistance blew up a train, and in retaliation, the Germans selected five prominent Dutchmen from different cities and had them publicly executed. They weren't even involved in blowing up the train. They were just an example. And it was the first time that a group was shot in public and the Germans are saying, hey, we're not messing around. This is what's going to happen to you if, you know, you do any of this resistance stuff. And one of those five men was Audrey's uncle Otto. The war had suddenly become personal to Mama and a lot of other Dutch people. I think there was a little bit of blinders. It's all fine as long as it's not happening to me or my family. But now it has reached its dirty finger into my household. Not only that, brother Ian was considered old enough to be sent to labor service. He'd been anxious about leaving his mother and sister alone. And so he hadn't gone into hiding, even though he was of age and he paid the price by being sent away to work as slave labor in a factory in Berlin. Tactics thin out the able-bodied population. This very same dragnet was sent out for Margot Frank, Anne's sister, which is why they'd gone into hiding in the first place. But Ian didn't go into hiding. And so he was sent away. The war has finally hit their family. Audrey is beginning to see things around her that she hadn't been noticing before. It has touched her and she, as well as her mother, were seeing the kind of trouble they were in, what was going on in their community. After the war, this is a story that she told about that time. More than once, I was at the station seeing trainloads of Jews being transported, seeing those faces over the top of the wagon. I remember very sharply one little boy standing with his parents on the platform, very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that was much too big for him. And he stepped on the train. I was a child observing a child. There's a problem. The resistance that they want to help is not that into trusting Mama. I wonder why. (laughs) Your reputation has preceded you. So she did facilitate some secret fundraisers. At different points, Audrey and friends did little dance performances to Swan Lake, or they'd have social evenings to raise funds for the Dutch resistance. But it was the kids that transported things like counterfeit ration cards, including Audrey. The things that kept the hidden Jews alive during the rest of the war were carried in the lunchboxes of middle schoolers right 
under the Germans' noses. The resistance would put these things in the kids' lunchboxes or the backpacks so that they would have plausible deniability. If, say, they had them in a pocket or in their sock or something, Mm -hmm. well, come on, you're going to be in trouble. But if you're just carrying a lunchbox and there's something in there, you could be like, I don't know. I set it on a shelf and just picked it up at school. But remember how, how the workers in Anne Frank's factory used fake ration cards to get them enough food to live. What if Audrey brought those ration cards? I mean, she brought some to some hidden Jewish people. Well, since Audrey spoke English and looked so innocent, she was often the one literally sent to meet British infiltrators and give them directions to their safe houses. You guys... This is a middle schooler. One time, she was on her way to meet a British, um, I guess you'd call him a spy. He was just kind of coming to work with the resistance. She was on her way to this place in the forest where she was supposed to meet this guy. And along come some Germans. And she quickly gathered up a bunch of wildflowers and presented them with little bouquets and like curtsied and was super friendly. And They went away saying, I just wish every Dutch child would be this friendly and nice. See, this is how it should be among friends. And the second they were out of sight, she went and undermined them. (laughs) (laughs) You got to really applaud her intellect here. I mean, that was actually kind of her first acting job, if you think about it. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm just gathering wildflowers, la la la. But then later, when people would praise her for her bravery... She would say that she hadn't done anything out of the ordinary. There was large popular support for undermining Germans in any way possible, but still very, very risky. And here is the beginning of Audrey's lifelong habit of downplaying her excellence in every field, from bravery to compassion to acting to dancing to looks to fashion. I mean, every single thing. She's like, oh, now I'm not anything. Mm. The Germans are getting increasingly pissed. Can I say pissed? You can. All of this subterfuge. And they began punishing the Dutch people as a whole. All of them. Gone were the benevolent brethren of years gone by. The food supply got smaller and smaller. The Nazi occupiers vacuumed a lot of it into their own gullets, of course. And then they sent the rest, or most of the rest, back to Germany. And even if you happen to have chickens or a cow... You know, I'm fine. I'm in the country. Nope. Requisitioned. Mine. Even the black market was hopelessly lacking in merchandise. Audrey and her mother lived on lettuce and bread cakes made out of green peas, mostly. So Audrey and Mama and the entire population of the Netherlands got sicker and thinner. And Audrey was too weak to take ballet. Everyone was too weak to take ballet. I mean, it... (laughs) It's over. Well, you don't stay healthy eating tulip bulbs. They took the tulip bulbs and they ground them into a flower. And she said it was a very fine flower. I don't, I'm assuming that's the texture, not the actual taste. But you, there's no nutritional value in it regardless. She's 5'7 at this point. Her weight dropped to 90 pounds. That's scary malnourished. And she became jaundiced too. She's not doing well at all. So right about now, this is the time when Audrey and Anne Frank are 15 that Anne Frank and her family were discovered in their hiding place and um, sent away. While trying to get hold of some bridges, the British bombed the living crap out of parts of Arnhem. The village that they lived in, you know, and the citizens were determined that they were going to help the British. And so they 
were very into hiding the British paratroopers who had come as part of the invasion. In fact, Mama gave a hidden British soldier her last bottle of champagne, which seems very much like Mama. It does. <laughs> oh, it hi. Does. You haven't had food in a week? Have a bottle of champagne. She was saving it for the day Queen Wilhelmina came back, but this was a better cause, she thought. Uh, definitely. We call it the Battle of Arnhem. There was more deaths at this battle than there were in Normandy. That's how big and how catastrophic it was. Well, all the residents of Arnhem were told to get out. At least the Nazis told them to get out. They didn't have a whole lot of time. And the Nazis blew up the town. They blew it up. They burnt what didn't blow up. It was devastated. It was leveled. So anyone hidden was gone. Audrey and Mama had to walk out to a house that Grandpa had owned out in the country, miles outside of town, and saw people literally collapsing and dying from hunger on the way. All trains were stopped, so there was no food, and there was no heat, and there was really no hope, to the point where you couldn't even have a coffin. You could borrow a coffin for the procession to bury your loved one, but then you had to dump the body and bring the coffin back for reuse. That's how many people were dying. So it was necessary to go out and scrounge so you wouldn't die. But the Nazis were roaming the streets looking for people to haul in for slave labor. If you were over about the age of 12, you were vulnerable. Audrey turned a corner one day while she was scrounging right into one lone German soldier who had a few girls lined up and had radioed for a truck to come get them. And I'm sure young girls were even more vulnerable to certain kinds of soldiers than their male counterparts. That's all I'm saying about that. And here's where the story diverges just a little bit. So either the truck didn't come, which is what we'll tell you first, or there's a whole other mythology that involves her already being loaded onto the truck. So we'll tell you that one too. Story number one, Audrey saw that she only had one chance because once the soldiers, the backup got there, you know, she didn't have a chance to run. Audrey took off. He had a choice. Was he going to lose the five he already had or take off after the one that was running? Well, that's pretty numerically easy since his compatriots didn't know about her. You know, <laughs> he wasn't going to lose any face. She ran away and either hid in a bombed out building or in the forest. I think the story is told different ways. It definitely is. You'll find some sources that say that she was actually put on the truck to be taken away, to be used as slave labor. And the truck stopped and she jumped off, rolled underneath it and fled into the woods. Regardless of what exactly happened, the, the result was the same. She was gone for days. Mama had no idea where she'd been. And then she snuck back home using every back way a local would ever know. Yeah. Unrecognizable in the dark. Poor Mama. Can you imagine her feelings when she saw her daughter? She already lost one son to the unknown labor camps. She lost another son to he's in hiding. Have you ever seen this whole thing reminds me of have you ever seen the you know, Mutual of Omaha, nature show where the wildebeests are trying to cross a river full of crocodiles. Like, mm -hmm. if you're a wildebeest, you have to get out to survive, but then the crocodiles are lurking. And do you take the chance? I mean, she's put in that position every day. Everyone has to go out and scrounge for food. Every day the Nazis are out trolling for slave labor. It's horrifying. Mm -hmm. Think about that. I mean, if you don't leave, you die. If you do leave, you die. Yeah, no choice. The family took to filling their stomachs with water and staying in bed to conserve their energy. I don't know if that was a reaction to the kidnapping or potential kidnapping or not. All of this deprivation did a number on Audrey's metabolism. 
just like Carrie Ingalls from the Laura Ingalls Wilder stories. If you recall, she was about 10 or 11 during the long winter when nobody had enough to eat and never, ever was able to gain weight for the rest of her life. I wonder if there's a developmental period where if you don't get nutrition, you just, that's it. Hmm. I don't know. I was really struck by that similarity. Um, Well, anyway, she and all the other residents of the Netherlands were walking skin and bones by the time Holland was liberated on her 16th birthday. I love that. That's a happy birthday. It is. It is. Audrey summed up the war in this way. The war left me with a deep knowledge of human suffering, which I expect many young people of later generations never know about. The things I saw during the occupation made me very realistic about life. I've been that way ever since. Do not ever discount anything awful you hear or read about the Nazis. It's worse than you can ever imagine. I came out of the war thankful to be alive, aware that human relationships are the most important thing of all, far more than wealth, food, luxury, careers, or anything you can mention. How can I follow that with a story about candy bars? (laughs) So the English soldiers, the British army had arrived in Arnhem. One of those soldiers gave Audrey five candy bars. Now, if you're starving, literally, and you're given five candy bars, you're going to snarf them all down which is what she did. And then she brought them back up again because you can't eat like that after you haven't eaten at all. But she was so touched by the generosity and the kindness shown to her by these British soldiers that were coming to liberate them. I mean, it was such joy. No matter what she had been through, she made a point of going to the wounded British soldiers in the hospital and talking to them and helping out at the hospital. So she volunteered her time to help the people who had come to help her country. I think that is just a perfect example of Audrey's character, how the Baroness had raised her daughter to think of others before herself. The only super bad thing that came out of her experience with the British soldiers is not only did they give her candy bars, which ultimately she learned to tolerate. She said, I got very tubby. Yeah, no, you didn't. Um, But Um, they gave her extra cigarettes, packs and packs of them. And she started chain smoking. I mean, one from the other, a habit that kind of lasted her whole life. And this is where it started, Mm -hmm. is uh, free gifts from the British soldiery. The United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration came in. They brought food, milk, coffee, canned foods. They brought blankets, first aid supplies. The schools in the town became relief centers. And Audrey and her family worked in those centers, handing out these things to their neighbors. Later on, that particular organization becomes UNICEF. This is another example of what you just said, that she wants to give back to people who helped her, only this one's going to take a lot more time. You're going to want to put a pin in the name UNICEF because it is going to come up later. Care packages started to arrive. And how about another acronym from the past? Fun fact. Did you know that CARE packages stands for the Cooperative for American Remittances to Europe. I did not. (laughs) CARE is just an acronym. Now we think of CARE packages as being like little thingies you send to your kid in college or at camp. Right. Um, I am going to give you a link to fall down this particular rabbit hole, um, the ingredients of each care package, what was included. Basically, what had happened is all of these rations called 10-in-1s that are um, 10 men's rations for a day, they were supposed to have gone to Japan, but they didn't because of Hiroshima. That horrific event 
did bring the war to a close earlier than everyone expected. And so there were a lot of extra rations left over that did not now need to go to American soldiers in Asia. Americans could sponsor a package for $10 and send it to Europe. The sheer riches of these parcels after years of deprivation were just unimaginable. Part of the box, her favorite part, are cans of evaporated milk. She would drink the whole thing and then like stagger around feeling so bad trying to keep it down, but she couldn't stop herself. It may as well have been Thanksgiving dinner. And in fact, it kind of was Thanksgiving dinner. Another thing she liked to do was bootleg the jars of jam out of the house and get a spoon and jam and just sit on a rock and shove it all into her head. She has a thing for sweets, I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That follows her for her whole life. The war is over. So one in 50 Dutch citizens had died during the war. That's a huge number. You don't really think about that. But one in 50. Wow. I'm actually surprised more didn't die. It was a horrific, horrific time. Oh, really? With the no food and bombs falling. Yeah. And their neighbors getting sent off to concentration camps. I saw it somewhere and I was like, wow, that seems high. I guess it isn't as high as you would have thought. Any is too many. Um, So you're right. After the war, both of Audrey's brothers made it home safely. Um, So Alexander's back, hooray, with a wife who is pregnant. So the future is already set. And Ian came back too, although he had to walk home from Berlin. So it took him longer. It's like 360 miles from Berlin to Arnhem. That is no joke. No joke at all. He walked most of the way. So there was a brief brief family reunion, the brothers decided to take their chances in the Dutch East Indies, where they had both been born. Of course, they are frying pan into the fire because the war for Indonesian independence happened right after that. But we're going to leave that to the side. As far as we know, they're off to a bright new life. Hooray. So Audrey and Mama could not move back to Arnhem because it had been leveled. So they moved to Amsterdam, where Audrey was able to stay with her ballet teacher. Ella got a job as a cook as a cook. You know she was not a good employee. No. In addition to being a cook, I think she was a... Housekeeper. uh, Yeah, maid for a while. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine that going well. Um, So she eventually moved on to a makeup artist Mm -hmm. and she worked in a flower shop. That's fine. Those things seemed a little more high class, but I think she had a very steep learning curve on how to earn a living. She's doing whatever she has to do to support her and her daughter. Audrey was able to begin her dance lessons again. She's 17. The horrors of the war are still with her, but she's back in real ballet shoes. During the war, she was sewing them from felt or anything that she could get her hands on. And she's finally back in the real ones. That must have felt. Can you imagine putting on your first pair of real ballet shoes after all those years? Or real anything, like going Mm -hmm. to the store and buying a dress. The most glorious luxury. Mm-hmm. Small things mean so, so much. For hours a day, even though her strength was really shot, she was so passionate about ballet that she worked and worked and didn't mind the effort and didn't mind the days spent on fundamentals. And she paid for her lessons by modifying hats out of a store. Hello, Coco Chanel. <laughs> doing the same thing. And she resold them at stores and salons. So she's enterprising and she's determined to make this ballet thing work. She had her first movie role at only 18 as a flight attendant. I found this on YouTube. Yes, I will put it in the show notes. The movie was called Dutch and Seven Lessons. And 
contrary to what you might read elsewhere, it was not a documentary. It was a short comedy about a cameraman who's sent to make a documentary in the Netherlands, but he keeps getting distracted by the beautiful women. <laughs> but you know what? The fact that you read that it's a documentary is sort of half true. Yeah. Because what had happened is that an organization had hired this photographer to make a travel documentary. Mm-hmm. And then they punked on his contract and they didn't pay him. And he had all this footage that he'd already taken. And he's like, really with this? And he decided if he added some footage and made it into a story, maybe he could get paid. The opening scene of the movie where the guy sort of cat calls her, that was actually her screen test. And they liked it so much that they opened their movie with it. So, however, it didn't make her a superstar, (laughs) but it did get her a modeling gig at a high-end fashion house. So the more money for ballet. Through an old friend from her boarding school days in the way back, she applied for and was granted a partial scholarship to a prestigious ballet school in London. Audrey, of course, is a British citizen, so she could just go. I mean, assuming you had the money, you could go. But Mama's exit was blocked. So the paperwork made this all drag out. Maybe it was her BUF activities that made her have to be scrutinized more, but it was at least a year before they could get permission for Mama to leave. And Audrey's getting older and taller. Mm -hmm. The school that she went to was run by Marie Rambert. Rambert. Uh, Marie had worked with some of the biggest names in dance, Nijinsky, Stravinsky, and Isidore Duncan. Agnes DeMille had been one of her students, and she called her Madame Wasp. She was tiny, teeny tiny, and she also had an ability to make people cry. Oh, every ballet teacher can make people cry. <laughs> Have any, has anyone taken ballet? They are the meanest. You think football coaches are mean? Nah. <laughs> and they will get to your personal weaknesses faster than anyone I could ever. <laughs> so when Audrey got to England, there was sort of a heartbreaking and realistic assessment of her capabilities. I'm sorry to say the war years had robbed her of her momentum and technique. She was graceful. She looked beautiful. That could get you pretty far. But the hard facts were, Charlie, you're years behind your contemporaries, at least five years. And at five foot seven, as far as many companies were concerned, you're too tall, Audrey. Ballet's ruthless. I myself was kicked out of a ballet school early for my height, which of course is too short, not too tall. The top ballerina in England, Margaret Fontaine, was five foot four. So everybody seemed to think there's your goal. Five four. There's a bigger range now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's Misty Copeland is only five two. And then there's a Russian ballerina that's I want to say almost five eight. But Also, I want to point out that this might have just been an excuse because there's a famous dancer, British, named Allegra Kent, who was 5'7". She had a giant career. Did she have giant feet? Audrey's feet were size 10, which is kind of large for women's feet. I don't think it had anything to do with this particular assessment of her body. I just want to throw that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so if it was just kindness to say it's your height, you can't help it. Mm -hmm. Um, If that's like the easy road to go down to let someone down, she was let down. She started to realize she was never, not ever going to be a success in her chosen field. And I just hate that. Mm -hmm. This was actually a uh, plot line on uh, the TV show, This Is Us, like just last week. I didn't watch that show. (gasps) Oh, you cry. I cry every single episode. I know I'm being manipulated and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) But this, it was a flashback scene to one of the characters and she was so into ballet. She wanted to be a ballerina and she was faced with the harsh realities that she wasn't cut out for it. Did it have anything to do with like the shape of her thighs? Because a lot of times that... Yes, actually... 
Yes, that was part of it. And she was the only black student in the school. So at first she was, you know, special because of that. But then more black students who were more talented came in and she kind of faced facts and went to plan B. Mm. Which made all the difference in the world. As it, it did for Audrey. I know. I'm wondering if the writers of This Is Us kind of modeled it after this story. Maybe. Well, she's so she's already modeling. You know, she was <laughs> the face of lactocalamine lotion, the foundation of beauty, which is still sold in stores. <laughs> um, but she was in Vogue. She was in other highfalutin publications also. And in a fake it till you make it Hail Mary that really served her well as a technique through her whole life, she started going to auditions with some friends for musical theater. Maybe the dancing would help. And sure enough, she beat the odds, I think, due to her looks and charm and made it on to the London production of a musical called High Button Shoes. I read that there was 3,000 candidates for 40 openings and that she was given the last one. Now, I don't know if this is just told this way to be dramatic, but uh, even if it wasn't 3,000 and it was 200, that's still a lot of people going for this one position. That's the whole premise of a chorus line. There's so many people for so few parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love. Okay, so I'm not familiar with high button shoes. I am familiar with the chorus line. I highly recommend it if you get a chance to go see that. And that deals with more modern versions of dance. So anyway, I, I'm not familiar with this. My parents always got comps for playing in the pit. I've never seen this one, though. I think their company never did this one. It's not very popular. Her looks and her, I guess you'd call it silent movie acting during the Keystone Cop-like big number in the middle got her spotted for her next projects. Two very extravagant musical reviews. People kept talking about her eyes. They would even ask her, how do you get them to do that? And she would look at people. They're just on my face. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, she had that ability to attract everybody's eye. One of the dancers that she had performed with at some point said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, the dancer said, I have the biggest bosom on stage, but everyone looks at the girl who has none at all. <laughs> She didn't say bosom. She said the T word. Well, her air of innocence, I don't know if that's what it was. People felt like Audrey could be their friend. She was speaking directly to them no matter where they were sitting in the theater. She had it, as we talked about during the Clara Bow episode. She had magnetismo, star quality, that unfathomable thing that you can't quantify. She had it. Well, a stint in a nightclub with a kind of a stripped down version of one of these musical reviews led to her second movie opportunity as a cigarette girl <laughs> with two lines. Lots of small roles followed, but... Most importantly, she was networking with her peer group. I think even more than now, the movie community is a small one. News gets around. You always want to work with someone that your friend worked with. You'd always call a friend over putting an ad out in the paper, you know, and she was getting a name for herself. She was impressing people who remembered her and recommended her. And she started to make it onto, let's call it past the velvet rope lists. You're in a room with stars. So-and-so's having a party. Do drop by. You know, she met a man named James Hansen in one of these parties who was a man about town, rich, rich British man, wanting to settle down, evidently. And then they got serious. 
he was a playboy. I had a hard time wrapping myself around the fact that he wanted to settle down with her. He was known for, you know, dating a lot of women, including Joan Collins and Ava Gardner. Oh, that's a problematic. I know. He had quite the little black book. It was probably a big black book. And Audrey's name was in it. Well, think about this, though. He was the son of a rich landowner from Yorkshire. So think Downton Abbey. And at mm-hmm. a certain point, the men folk got a little pressure well, the women too, frankly, but it's a lot later for the men folk. They get pressure to marry and continue the respectable family line. The daughter of a baroness, perfectly respectable. Oh, so yeah. I think Mama was actually relieved. Uh, like, okay, Audrey, this career thing is just crazy. Do whatever. But a rich fiance, that's insurance. Oh, yeah. Ella loved this guy. I heard a report. Now I'm not going to, I don't, I only heard in one source that uh, when he would stay overnight, she'd bring them breakfast in bed. Mama did. (laughs) Again, this might be like National Enquirer level source, but I love the story. (laughs) Man. I mean, she did love him that she was a, this was a perfect match as far as Mama Ella was concerned. So she was sort of like that lady who has recently been spotted wandering the campus of a university trying to get girls to marry her son. <laughs> did you see that? I did. I did. Red flag. <laughs> Mom's cornering people. So funny. Okay. So Audrey's next minor part turned out to be the turning point TM. <laughs> okay. So right on the cusp of greatness, we are going to leave Miss Audrey and take a little break. And when we come back, let us embark on her career. Do you love discovering new products? The 2019 FabFitFun Spring Box is on sale now. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. It's delivered to your house four times a year, and it has full-size beauty, fashion, home, fitness, and wellness products. It's a well-rounded lifestyle box. Treat yourself with items in it, such as the Jodzi copper-plated measuring spoons, which I think are fabulous, as I have decided to take up baking, because I can't possibly compete with my husband in chefery. <laughs> yeah, those are really cute. I can see them in your kitchen. Personally, I like the show me your moo robe and not just because it's fun to say, but it's a kimono robe with a floral print. It looks really comfortable. There was a Summer End Rose little crossbody bag in my box that I frankly saw all over Paris and I just got back from there. So they are up on the latest thing for sure. And I have to tell you, they must have known that I am not sleeping right now. We are working on a book and several shows all at once. And I do need quite a pick-me-up with highlighters and eye masks. So <laughs> you should sign up for FabFitFun today. You can use our code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well-lived. Use promo code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 worth of products for only $39.99. So go to FabFitFun and use our code HISTORY to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box today. And we're back. Audrey is teetering, although she does not know it yet, on the edge of celebrity. 
always an exciting moment. So she received a small part in a movie called Monte Carlo Baby, which was filmed actually in Monte Carlo. And it was a movie role she didn't really want to take. She thought, maybe if I stay in London, I'll get a better role than this one. And I don't really want to leave Jimmy. Jimmy. James. She called him Jimmy. I, I can't. Uh, <laughs> she, so she really thought about it long and hard, whether she was going to take it or not, but ended up doing so. And it's changed everything. During filming in the lobby of a hotel, the famous French author Colette wanted a meeting. I just saw her grave, by the way, at Père Lachaise. Um, People are still putting flowers on it. She is on the list. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Anyway, Colette was absolutely insistent that Audrey was the absolute personification of one of her book characters called Gigi. And she, she'd done this before. There was a character she had written in her youth named Claudine. And man, did they search far and wide to come up with the actress to play the Claudine, who embodied the personification of Claudine. So she's doing the same thing with Gigi, which seems very in character. You'll know it when you see it, you know. She saw Audrey during filming and was so into the fact that this was finally her person that she called back to New York and said, stop the casting, I've got her. Well, she had um, veto rights. Anybody that they cast in the role in New York, now we're in Monaco, she had to give approval to, and she felt that Audrey was her Gigi. They got along so well, too. At first, uh, Colette's like, I'm going to put you on the stage for this play. And Audrey's like, oh, no, I don't I do not do that. Not, I don't act like that. Oh, you'll be fabulous. And then the next <laughs> thing they know, they're just talking about stuff. So much so that at the end of their first meeting, Colette gave Audrey a photo and signed it and said to Audrey Hepburn, the treasure I found on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) It should be noted for you Harry Potter fans that the same thing happened to J.K. Rowling and Robbie Coltrane. I mean, it was a little different. Robbie Coltrane was not an unknown. In fact, I think that she'd had him in her head for this part all along. So it's a little different. But he walked into the room. She grabbed a hold of the hand of the person next to her and said, Hagrid has walked into the room. Nice. There you go. He was the first one cast, as far as I know, from anyone. So Colette knew it when she saw it. And soon everyone else started to also. It took Colette, I think, to open their eyes. They were amazed by Audrey's gracefulness and gentleness and simplicity. Everyone commented on her sort of unearthly looks. Simultaneously to these negotiations, the director of a movie called Roman Holiday asked for a short list of actresses to screen test. And Audrey was one of the five candidates. And here's what I love about this whole thing. I love that she was so naive. She's just, okay, sounds good. She doesn't comprehend the importance of the people she's about to see. And I think that's part of her charm. You know, people are people. I'll just go do this thing. She has no conception of how important they are. So she walks in friendly and not that nervous. Mm -hmm. And that could be what got her the part. (laughs) Possibly. Uh, Now that a role was originally they had planned on Elizabeth Taylor, who looks, you know, not even the same type as Audrey Hepburn. They were actually going to make this movie about five years before now with Elizabeth Taylor and Cary Grant. 
and that fell through. And then when this edition came up, they were going to reapproach Elizabeth Taylor again. And then they really settled on an actress named Jean Simmons, not the one from Kiss, J-E-A-N. And I'm really sorry to say that the person that wrecked that gig for her is Howard Hughes. He was in love with her and she insisted on being in love with someone else. And he was so angry that he would not loan her out from his studio for this picture. So by such machinations, Audrey Hepburn rose to the top of the heap. She was brought in for a screen test. During her screen test, it was the scene in bed where uh, Princess Anne throws herself on the bed. And that's what she acted out for her screen test. And the cameras kept rolling when it was over. And she just sat up demurely and stretched and hugged her knees and said, how was I? Was I any good? And just kind of batted her eyes, but not in a way that was affected. Mm -hmm. It was just totally natural. And anyone who saw that footage was like, oh my goodness. Yes. Her. So she got both gigs. Rut row. It's an embarrassment of riches. But luckily, due to her co-star schedule, Roman Holiday got pushed back a year. So she didn't have to choose between them. Off to Broadway to star in Gigi. And although she had the best coaches New York could provide for her, Audrey was fired over and over. <laughs> rehired, fired, rehired, fired, like every other week, even after the out-of-town trials. I have to say war gave her grit. She persisted, and her charm must have won them over. Gigi was ultimately a hit. Audrey's performance carried it, as far as many critics were concerned. It's about a girl brought up by, I guess I have to just call them courtesans, mm -hmm. who basically failed her in her upbringing because she ended up marrying her protector instead of using him for his money. Oh, you know, how dare uh, you? I know. It was such a hit and she was so good in the role that a week after the first performances, they put her name over the title on the marquee. That is something. For somebody who got fired that many times and didn't think she could do the job. Amazing. That year, Audrey was in consideration for a Tony Award for her role in Gigi. How's that for zero to 100? She did 200 and 17 performances. Also running concurrent to all of this is she and James got engaged. So she's planning her wedding. She's flying up to Toronto on the weekends to see him on Sundays when she didn't have a show and flying back in time for her Monday evening show. So she has this whole relationship going on. She has Gigi going on and she's got Roman Holiday now just waiting for her to finish up Gigi so they can start production. So on to filming Roman Holiday on location. Has everyone seen this movie? I guess I'll give you a little synopsis. Princess Anne from the kingdom of Idonoica, because it's always these, you know, principalities in the middle of Europe. It's just like they do in the Princess Diaries. Genovia. Yeah, it's not Genovia, but it's like Genovia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She is on a state visit to Rome to represent her country. There's so much protocol. There's so much scheduling. Thank you. No, thank you. Princess Anne wants more. She wants freedom. She has a breakdown, <laughs> I think, and a nervous breakdown. And her staff slips her a Mickey. But before it takes effect, Princess Anne has escaped out of the gates of laxsecurity.com and into the streets of Rome. And she meets a journalist and it is Montage City from then on. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> the director evidently was a tyrant and the weather was sweltering, but 
Audrey didn't know any different. So everyone else is all, what a professional. She's not even talking back to this guy. And Audrey just thinks, this is how a movie set just is. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just so much of her naivete serves her well. I love the fact that it was filmed on location with basically the non-obedient citizens of Rome as extras. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's call them hecklers like they'd get done with the shoot and the director would be like print that i think that's good and everyone would be like one more take you know <laughs> and then they you know would blow kisses to her and this and that one 14 year old boy ran into a shot shook her hand and then ran home to tell his mom he'd met the most beautiful woman in the world he'll come into the story later let's leave him there <laughs> There's this one scene where um, Princess Anne sticks her hand into the mouth of truth, this statue. And apparently, I was talking about it with a friend of mine named Sarah, and she has a picture of herself doing that when she was in Rome. And when she went, there was this huge line to do exactly the same thing. That's how, how this movie has crept into our, you know, our contemporary pop culture. It is so much in our pop culture that people are sort of afraid to do it because of a prank that he played on her in the movie where he set this up ahead of time that he was going to do this and surprised the living crap out of her. He stuck his hand in and then screamed. And when he pulled it back, he'd been taught like sleight of hand and he pulled it back and his hand pulled it up into his sleeve and he looked at his hand with his look of horror and it, <laughs> she like laughed so hard she almost peed. <laughs> When they do that scene, that's really her reacting to him <laughs> pulling that prank on her. I love that. So another thing they had to face was terrorist activity, believe it or not, because Italy was still in turmoil after World War II. Evidently, a whole bunch of explosives were removed from under a bridge that was scheduled to be used the next day for a scene. That's something you don't typically have to worry about. No. Um, the best thing she got out of this was advice from her director where he said don't act just be her co-star gregory peck an actual movie powerhouse at this time called the studio to get audrey top billing over him what he has given her the gift of his wagon to hitch her star to he was so intent about it he said look this is going to come out she's going to be a star and then i look like a schmuck because her name is so small. Nope. You need to you need to pull her up. This is for real. And he being such a powerful guy, they did it. And that was a great gift. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. And I am I'm sitting here with my eyes kind of wide open because I had a read a, t a different twist on it that when the director went back and looked at the first uh, film from the movie, he could see the, the star power she had and she he went to Gregory Peck and said would you mind sharing billing and then Gregory graciously agreed yeah so yeah I mean Gregory agrees regardless so that it's how it got started though is is I guess up for debate at some point while Roman Holiday was in post-production and she was on tour with Gigi Audrey and James Hansen broke off their engagement James had actually been writing to the producers of the movie, trying to get filming to wrap up as it was going long. He had to marry Audrey at a certain day. He's going behind her back over her head to the production company in Paramount and saying, you know, let her go. Let her out of her contract. It, Audrey got wind of it. And by sheer coincidence, probably not. The engagement was canceled. And she said that it just wasn't the right time in her career to get married. 
I'm going to say that wasn't the right guy to get married to. Yeah, I think if he's going to do that before the wedding, act that controlling, that is a red flag. That and all the women that he seemed to find uh, on his arm. (laughs) He never really stopped his tomcatting. Interesting. Well, Mm -hmm. that'll be a pattern. Yep. Hold on for that ride. Well, at her co-star Gregory Peck's Welcome Back to London party, Audrey met and was really attracted to his actor friend Mel Ferrer, who was married, by the way. Sparks flew, but did not yet ignite. What did ignite was Audrey Hepburn's career. (laughs) Though pressure was put on her, by the way, right before the movie came out to drop the Hepburn out of her name, wasn't this too confusing because of Catherine Hepburn? You really need to change your last name. What are the chances? That's a really weird name. And she said, no, you take me, you take my name. And what could they do? Because the footage is already in the can. That's right. (laughs) Well, Roman Holiday came out and Audrey became the, with capital T-H and E, fashion icon of America. The critics praised her. And I quote, she sparkles and glows like a finely cut diamond. Men were attracted to her. Women wanted to be her. I am not sure we can absolutely blame her for the fashion for real thinness, but I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you know what? Here's the thing. At the time, the voluptuous woman was the ideal. And here comes Audrey, just rail thin, you know, straight lines. She was actually unusual looking like we look at her and we're like oh she's such a classic beauty but at the time they're like wow here's a woman whose body i might be able to obtain she doesn't look all curvy her contemporary elizabeth taylor shall we say is bodacious yeah yes exactly (laughs) elizabeth taylor in your head audrey hepburn right next to her audrey was the exception to the rule I, she was seen as accessible even more so after her next movie i just i don't necessarily think rail thin is any more attainable than pneumatic no i don't think so either but at least you opened up fashion i think for perhaps a larger segment of the population well she started filming her next movie sabrina about a chauffeur's daughter who goes to paris and returns a different more alluring creature and she was asked to go to france for the i guess let's call it the makeover fancy clothes for when (laughs) sabrina comes back to america She went to the studio of a new designer named Hubert de Givenchy that the director's wife had discovered. Her mission was to dress herself because she was so much Sabrina in the eyes of the production people behind the movie that they wanted her to dress herself. And she came in and was announced. They said, Miss Hepburn is here to see you. And Givenchy is like, oh, sweet. And then he realized it wasn't Catherine Hepburn. So this is probably one of the only times that the Catherine Hepburn thing happened. You know, the mistake. And he didn't know who Audrey was. So he said, well, I don't have time for you right now, but you can go over to my racks and see if you can pick something out over there. I think it's funny. He'd cleared his whole day for Catherine Hepburn. But then right. this person comes in. He goes, well, I'm working on my collection. There's the rack. Uh, borrow whatever you want. <laughs> I, but you know what she's like? Okay, think of this haute couture style house. And here comes Audrey. She's wearing pants, ballet flats, a t-shirt, a straw gondolier hat. You know, that's her look. You can get it in your head right away. And he's probably like, oh no. (laughs) Oh no. Very well, she said, smiling sweetly in the you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar department. She just went over to the racks and started helping herself. It 
took her all day. And I can only imagine these sidelong glances from the designer to this woman in his studio, increasingly more impressed as the hours wore on. Audrey ended up picking the perfect pieces for her body. She knew how to dress her body. She knew what looked good on her. Um, she knew her style and she picked everything out that was perfect. Her and uh, Givenchy struck up a friendship, a very close friendship that would last the rest of Audrey's life. So there's a, her- how's that for a cute meet greet? What's it called? Is that what it's called? Is that what it's called? Oh. Nope. Meet cute. Oh, yeah. How's that for a meet cute? <laughs> I have the biggest smile on my face right now. I think I just want to squeeze you. I- <laughs> anyway, back to Audrey. Her style plus his style became the fashion ideal of the new decade. No less than Cecil Beaton, who we covered in The Crown, photographer to the stars, wrote the following in Vogue magazine. It is always a dramatic moment when the phoenix rises anew from its ashes, for if queens have died young and fair, they are also reborn. Even while the pessimists were predicting that no new feminine ideal could emerge from the aftermath of war, an authentic Galatea was being forged in the person of Miss Audrey Hepburn. I would like to nominate Cecil Beaton for the rooster list. Oh, yeah. Uh, because if you listen to the recapery, he came up quite often because he was the photographer to the royal family. He went on to say, nobody ever looked like her before World War II. It's doubtful if anybody ever did, unless it be those wild children of the French Revolution who stride in the foreground of romantic canvases. Like, dang. All right. <laughs> we get it. She is the hot thing for the new millennium. So she had an affair with her married co-star, William Holden, so much for that innocence, who introduced her to his wife. What? I don't like this. Anyway, the whirlwind romance did not survive the filming of Sabrina. So the chips fell where they may. I guess. Yeah. Well, Audrey wanted to have a family. And when she found out that Bill Holden had had a vasectomy uh, maybe that was his wife. You know, they had a reportedly a semi-open marriage. But, you know, a woman is one thing. A woman and a child is another. So once Audrey found out that he couldn't have children, she cooled on him quite a bit. <laughs> it wasn't the meeting his wife. No, 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 not at all. Or the fact that she was dating a married man. No. So old Mel Ferrer, the lightning striker from long before, set her up in another stage play with him as her co-star. She is constantly working during these days and set her up in an apartment. He had divorced his wife and remarried the same wife. But when this Audrey thing started, they actually got divorced again. <laughs> what is it with married men? I don't know. While this play was knocking people's socks off, Audrey got the Oscar for Best Actress for Roman Holiday. Her very first starring role, she gets the top prize. And she reminds me during the ceremony of Jennifer Lawrence. Do you remember for The Hunger Games, I think, mm-hmm. when she went at Ford House? She's sort of beautiful, but dorky. Yeah. <laughs> and she fell on the way up the stairs. Yeah. Well, Audrey did something very similar. She was surprised and excited and ran up and turned the wrong way and went behind the curtain for a second, like in every movie where they, that's the closet, that's not the exit. And so she had to come out all embarrassed. And then during the after party, she lost her Oscar somewhere. (laughs) She does not have it together. (laughs) But three days later, she also got a Tony Award. Yes, people. Her first movie and her second play. She wins the top honors. 
check. So we are going to leave Audrey here at the pinnacle of her game. So early in her career, at the top of every list, we will have to leave the rest of Audrey's life for another episode. So stay tuned for part two of Audrey Hepburn coming in the next two weeks. We'll put media recommendations in the second half. Well, that will do it for today. If you've learned something today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Exciting news. If you would like to see Susan and I live, you have an amazing opportunity. From May 31st to June 2nd of this year, we will be in Nashville at PodX. What's PodX, you say? Well, it is sort of amazing. It is a podcasting convention that is for podcasters and podcast listeners. Such a thing has not really been tried before, and I think it's going to be amazing. We're very much looking forward to it and to meeting lots of you there. So if you have the opportunity, please do go to podx.com and poke around and buy some tickets to come see us. We would love to meet you. Don't miss the Pinterest board for Audrey Hepburn. It is so full of pictures and was quite easy to put together, unlike some of them. The end song today is by Xavier and Ophelia, Made of Stars, used by permission from Music Alley. The Thank you.